Tell Me Your Names and I Will Testify is a memoir in essays by Carolyn Holbrook, who summons untold stories stifled by pain or prejudice or ignorance, and ultimately demonstrates how creative writing can be a powerful tool for challenging racism. Holbrook was founder of the literary arts organization SASE, also known as SASE, The Right Place, and now leads more than a single story, a series of community conversations for people of color and indigenous writers and arts activists. She is joined here by Sherry Fernandez-Williams, a writer based in the Twin Cities and the author of Soft, a memoir. This edited conversation was recorded in July 2020. Hi, this is Carolyn Holbrook. This is Sherry Fernandez-Williams. How are you, Carolyn? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. (laughs) I have to say that I love your book so much. Uh, Tell me your names and I will testify. It's, It's beautiful. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for being such a part of the book as well. Um, You know, being part of the writing group and giving me so much feedback over these last few years has been just Mm. awesome. Yeah, it's been, it's been such a gift to me. You know, I was thinking about, you know, first joining the group and meeting you and what a difference you've made in my life, particularly my writing life, connecting me to a publisher, sharing other opportunities to submit work, and all of that. So all facets of my writing career, you've been a part of that. Yeah, I, I do feel like I'm your big sister. Yeah. <laughs> I was the youngest girl in my family, so I needed a little sister, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy to play that role. <laughs> so um, would you be okay if we'd start with um, Liza? Mm-hmm. The, the book opens up with this prologue, beautiful prologue of um, you meeting an ancestor uh, in the form of a ghost who came to visit and she wanted to tell you to write our story. Yeah. I feel that she and, and all of your ancestors would, would be very proud and that like this book is the manifestation of their dreams. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's that that is something I'll never ever forget. I mean, I was just sitting in the living room alone, you know, getting ready to watch a movie after a long day at work. And I looked up and there she was standing by the front door of my apartment and and she told me that. She said you have to tell our stories and then she was gone. So, I've been sort of living with that as not only permission, but as a mandate. It's something that I was com- commanded to do. And I hope she's happy with what I did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I wonder, would you like to to read a little bit of of that section just to kind of get us started? Sure. When I turned 50, (laughs) I found myself in a financial situation that was just really difficult. It was, you know, really hard to deal with. And Mm -hmm. my parents have this beautiful duplex down in South Minneapolis, and um, they rent the second floor. And just when I needed a place to go with my youngest daughter, the others were gone by then, their tenants moved out, and the place was available for me. So I talk about that at first, just, you know, at the age of 50, having to move back Uh into the house is unimaginable. But anyway, so here we go. Yes, sometimes necessary. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm so glad it was available. So one evening, a couple months before we were, we were settled in, I kissed my daughter goodbye 
and sent her off to whatever teenage thing she was doing that autumn night. It had been a long day of meetings for a new literary arts organization that I was in the process of building. That was sassy, Sherry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was looking forward to a night of solitude. I slid a movie into the VHS player and slumped down on the sofa and was about to dig into a bowl of freshly popped popcorn when I thought I saw something shadowy out of the corner of my eye. I didn't pay much attention, thinking it was probably my long-deceased maternal grandfather, who was, you know, somebody who visited me a lot back then. He doesn't anymore. Visits from loved ones who have passed on were not new to me. Just the year before, my sister called on me to help her decide whether to stay on the earth plane or to cross over after she had suffered a brain aneurysm. Though she was in San Francisco and I was in Minneapolis, I reached through the veil and held her hand, and I knew the moment the aneurysm took her life. Also, my beloved stepfather paid me a reassuring visit when I woke up from surgery shortly after he passed away in 1984. And, of course, there was Grandfather Robert. But this was the first time a spirit showed up with an explicit command. Once I recovered and could breathe again, my mind was full of questions. Why was I the one she came to? What does she want me to say? What parts of my family's story want to be told, need to be told? Which will demand to be told? Who will be hurt by what I write? Who will be healed? It was impossible to sleep that night, so when Ebony got home, a few minutes past her curfew, I told her what had happened. All three of my daughters are used to hearing my stories of ghostly visitations, but a visit from a spirit with an explicit command was new to all of us. Hmm. Ebony had questions that mirrored mine. So did my two older daughters, Iris and Tanya, when I told them the next day. I knew I had no choice but to follow Liza's command, but I didn't have a clue where to begin. I thought that maybe my first step should be to to try and find out who she was. The next day, I asked my mother if she knew someone from our past named Liza. I was reluctant to share the reason for my question, fearing that she wouldn't believe me or or would ridicule me for what she tended to characterize as my overactive imagination. (laughs) Thankfully, she didn't ask, choosing only to tell me that she didn't know of anyone by that name. I then called my cousin Stephanie and my stepmother Joyce, both genealogists. Joyce said she had found Eliza on my father's ancestry, but all she could give me was the name. She didn't know her story. Cousin Stephanie, on the other hand, who also receives occasional visitations, said she had uncovered an Eliza in her research of my matrilineal line, an enslaved woman who was living at the same time as Liza, my stepmother, had found. Eliza had lived on the plantation of a slave owner named John Lee and gave birth to my mixed-race grandfather, Robert, giving him the surname Lee. She moved to Denver, Colorado with her son in the Gold Rush era. It is unclear whether Eliza escaped after enduring sexual exploitation or if perhaps she was John Lee's mistress. From what we know of chattel slavery, either story could have been true. It's no secret that many of our foremothers were raped at random, often repeatedly by the same man, and then bore his children. We also know that slaves were sold at the whim of the owner whose property they were, but there were also stories of slave women and children who were taken care of by the men who loved them. Based on some of what I know about the history of my people, of my family's history, and also of my own life, 
I started writing whatever came to mind, mostly drivel. After a while, stories began to form. Most writers are familiar with the muse that helps us with our writing and the internal critic who tries to put roadblocks in our path. For me, the muse and the critic are the voices of my maternal aunts, both who have been in the ancestral realm for many years. Sometimes when I'm working on a difficult passage, I imagine them sitting on my shoulders. The aunt who has strong religious beliefs sits on my left shoulder, shaking her finger and saying, now don't you go stirring things up. <laughs> my other aunt sits on my right shoulder, a cigarette in one hand and a glass of scotch in the other. She smiles encouragingly and says, don't hold back, child. Someone out there needs to hear what you have to say. Sometimes it's difficult to find the balance between their words and mine, what to say and what to leave out. I do the best I can. There's so much happening just in that uh, section that you read. You talk about these visitations. You know, early on you talk about holding your sister's hand, um, although she was miles away from you, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, when she was transitioning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, it seems like that's like a big, kind of like a big part of your life. Certainly, you know, the adult life that you describe in the book, just kind of like having this, um, this gift of sight, you might call it a, like a deep intuition or a deep knowing, mm -hmm. being just very spiritually attuned. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like that's been the thing that has driven you <laughs> in your life, um, the way you raised your children, the way um, you've gotten to arts administration and involved in, you know, kind of community work and literary work and, and in your own writing. Yeah, I guess I do sort of manage my life largely on an intuitive basis. Um, uh, I mean, not not totally, of course. I do know. I do know how to um, add a number or two every now and then, but right. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, I feel like I have been largely driven to do these things. Like, you know, I've always wanted to write, and yeah. when I left home after having had my my oldest child at the age of seventeen, you know, he was placed in foster care for fourteen months, and when I got him back, I just decided, okay, it's time to get out of here. And my biological father was living in Springfield, Massachusetts. You know, I didn't have much money at all. I think I had $18. I took that $18 and hopped a Greyhound bus, packed my kid on my back, and went to Springfield, Massachusetts. I think that's when a lot of things began to open up. I somehow landed a job managing a tutoring center. There are a lot of colleges around Springfield and the, and the area um, in Massachusetts. You know, there's Mount Holyoke and the University of Massachusetts. Um, there's, you know, several other colleges around there and they sent students a lot to tutor the kids in the neighborhood. And I just tended to learn a lot just by being around, you know, professors who wanted their, their students to participate in this program and also the students who wanted to participate. In the meantime, this was around the mid sixties and the, the civil rights movement was heating up. You know, there's just a lot going on and I just sort of tended to weave between being a part of this and a part of that and just sort of learning stuff along the way that I didn't even realize I was learning. And I think that's kind of largely how my life has been. So you're kind of an intuitive learner. Yeah, I think I am. Yeah. But you must do a lot of paying attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder if it has something to do with the, the quiet spirit as well. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, 
I really um, appreciated what Tasha Robertson and the Star Tribune said about your work. Beautiful things. One of the things she said is that um, your book is a looking glass into a life well lived. Mm -hmm. She did. And uh, yeah, I felt that was that was really, really true. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) I just wondered if if you feel that 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 came from you know, you understanding what your call was. And even if you didn't know, like the big picture, like everything that was going to happen, um, you, you, it seems like you knew at least what the next step would be or what the next step was supposed to be. Or at least, you know, if, if you didn't know where that step was leading you, you knew, it seems like intuitively the direction you were supposed to step. And then all of these things kind of happen <laughs> in that process. At least that's that's what it looks like to me. And I, I think I've shared that with you like before that I felt like like there's some just magic happening <laughs> around you and, and the decisions you make. I would say it's more that than knowing what steps to take next. I think for me, a lot of it is more of a willingness to step into the unknown or to take the next step. And for some reason, someone someone has always been there to take me by the hand and lead me, you know, once I, once they saw that I was willing to take that next step. If it was intuitive knowing, I didn't know that that, that it was that. Yeah. <laughs> I have this, if I can find it, a quote by Joseph Campbell. He said, we must be willing to get rid of the life we've planned so as to have the life that's waiting for us. Mm. And I think that I've done a, a lot of that along the way. And in fact, you know, I don't know, it's kind of weird that a lot of times the the things that I plan don't work out. You know, I knew I had to get get out of here. I needed to get away from Minneapolis, get, needed to get away from my mother's house when I was a young woman. And um and I knew that my dad lived in Massachusetts and you know, my plan, the big plan I had was to you know, find my way to New York and you know, become a theater person. Oh, okay. <laughs> that never happened, you know. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for one thing, I'm too shy and too introverted to um, to be good at theater. But all these other things happened instead that were like, oh, okay, so that's why I came here. Um, you know, running the tutoring center and then moving to Boston and getting involved in this theater that, um, but but not being an actor in the theater, being, right. you know, something else, being more of a costume person, mm-hmm. you know, and then eventually coming back home after marrying this guy and the marriage failing. And then, you know, starting the Whittier Writers Workshop in the 80s when I came back home and I was just so depressed I couldn't even think. But I know, as I mentioned before, I've always wanted to write. So I figured, well, gee, maybe this is the time for me to learn how to, yeah. to take some writing classes. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know at the time that um, there wasn't anything available for a young woman with no money. So I tried. I did try to take an independent class at the U, which was funded. Um, but I, I also didn't know that that I was just too depressed and too mm-hmm. too unable to focus. So it didn't work out. I do. I, I don't think I was able to complete that class. But I knew that that Lawrence Hutera, the guy that ran the park center, really mm-hmm. liked my kids, and he had all these performing arts things going on. I just figured, well, gee, it won't hurt to ask him if he'd be willing to you know, start some writing classes. And sure enough, he told me, well, I'll tell you what, you find a teacher and we'll start the class. And, you know, I had started the secretarial service in my, in my home because, you know, before I dropped out of high school, (laughs) I was really good in the secretarial services. 
So I figured, okay, so here we are, broke as a joke. <laughs> all these children and you know my co-parent is you know not very nice and I don't want these kids of mine to get into the mindset that this is all there is for them so I figured okay one thing I can do is this I start a home-based business and teach them the skills that I had you know and they were all really smart kids anyway they still are I mean they're just doing some amazing stuff as adults and the grandkids are too Brilliant people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You know a few of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I don't know. And then just one thing leads to another. And it's like, oh, well, I guess this is where I'm supposed to go next or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you want to tell that story, how um, how all of that came about? So um, you would take your kids to the park and then you one day you just decided to ask uh, Lawrence Vitera if he would offer a writing class. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you find a teacher, yeah, then he'll, he'll do it and he'll, he'll support you in that process. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, my youngest son, I have two boys and three girls. And my youngest son, whose name is Julian, he was in fifth grade then. And um, he came home one day and he told me that there was a poet in his school, in his classroom. And... Um, he overheard her telling the teacher that he need, that she needed someone to type her manuscript. He suggested that she call me, and she did. And when she came to my home, I asked her if she'd be willing to teach a creative writing class in a city park, and she said, sure. She taught a six-week class. I mean, Lawrence taught me how to write a press release. He had a, a really strong media list. And we thought there would be just a few ladies from the neighborhood, like myself, who wanted to write people. Yeah. Okay. People came from all over the Twin Cities, and we had no idea that we had wow. such a large and strong literary community here. We had no idea. And so after she taught the first class, she agreed to do a second class and also to start um, introducing me to other teaching artists. And, you know, the Whittier Writers Workshop was born. And she, by the way, is Natalie Goldberg. Yes. She was a <laughs> very young woman then. She was a, you know, writing a book of poems. I don't know if you'd call it intuition or life or whatever. Another way that things has have worked is that she doesn't remember this. I've had other experiences now, you know, as I continue to grow through life, where people have come to me and said, I did such and such because of something you said, and I have no idea who they are. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just how it goes sometimes, you know? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. One, once when she was here, um, I introduced myself. I met her and saw her in a coffee shop. And she said, yeah, like, who are you? People keep mentioning your name to me. Who are you? <laughs> and so I reminded her of that. And, and it's like, oh, wow, you know, when you're busy doing your life, um, yeah. you know, I think things happen. And, you know, some yeah. of the stories that you have told me, Sherry, about um, some of our interactions, I have no yeah. memory of them at all. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, okay. So you, okay. you don't know whose life you're impacting. You don't know how you're impacting your life, you know? That, yeah, that's incredible. I don't know. It seems like this otherworldly or divine <laughs> force is kind of at work and putting the right people in place at the right time mm-hmm. for, the, for the right situation or for the, you know, to kind of create something um, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and that continued. And, and it was really um, cool to hear that after you went to 
work for a literary organization and then you decided to start Sassy, there was a thousand dollars waiting mm-hmm. um, that you didn't know anything about. It was It was like donated to Whittier Writers, uh, you know, yeah. five years earlier. Mm-hmm. And then you were able to use that to, to start now, um, you know, what became Sassy. Yep, that's In 1993, right? Yep, 1993. I I was the first person of color to have a leadership position at the loft. And, you know, I I stayed there five years and it was really toxic for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it was toxic for a lot of people back then, but it's, you know, they've, things grow and evolve and change, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it Mm -hmm. it just became clear to me over those five years that my values are really different from theirs, but I didn't know what to do about it because the kids growing up, you know, you know, growing up, going off to college and this and that. And it's like, I needed this income. And at the same time, I really liked the writers I was working with. So I didn't know what to do. And then there was a last straw moment when my oldest granddaughter, when Tess was born, I wasn't able to be with my daughter when Tess was born because I had caught Mm. meningitis and a person that I had brought into the loft for one of their mentoring programs told Mm -hmm. me he's, he, he was very observant too. And he says, you know what? They have made you sick. Don't let them kill you. Mm. <laughs> and that was it for me. I said, okay, I'm out of here. Mm. And you know, I, I hung on for six more months because, again, I didn't know what to do. But I gave my resignation and they talked me into staying six more months mm. while they tried to figure out what to do next. And during those six months, you know, that was in the 90s. Um, yeah. We didn't have email and texting capabilities. So I was getting a lot of phone calls instead from people saying, are you leaving? Are you going to start another organization? Because a lot of them, a lot of people knew about Whittier. And a lot of people, I didn't even know they knew about it, but they did. And they kept mm. asking me, are you going to start another one? And I kept saying, no, I'm done with this stuff. No more ever again, ever. <laughs> the day after my last day at the loft, I got all my energy back. So I called, I called wow. some of those people back. The day after. The day after. <laughs> wow. Which to me says, oh yeah, that was a bad situation for me. Um, you know, I'm happy with my with my relationship with the loft today. Different time, different place. Different time, people. different place. Different <laughs> I really enjoy my relationship with them now. But um, you know, I called some of those people back, and then 18 of them said, "Yeah, I'll help you." So I had a friend of mine who does ideation sessions. Um, he agreed to volunteer to have an ideation session about what would a new organization for writers in the Twin Cities look like. And so they all came. It was elderly people, young people, black people, white people, queer people, straight people. There was just, you know, people from, they all showed up. And I said, oh, I guess, I guess these folks are serious. Mm-hmm. And the ground, the ground rules were simply no loft bashing. We're not going to be looking at what's here. We're looking at what can we create. And what we came up with was this little organization that, you know, which became Sassy the Right Place. And we had this tiny little office in uptown Minneapolis and did all of our programming out in the community, Mm -hmm. which I think you got involved with. Mm -hmm. Yep. It was the the mentoring program. And then later I received the Sassy Jerome grant that was after the merger, but with Intermedia Arts, but it was still a Sassy Jerome grant, (laughs) which is something that you started. Yeah. The Jerome Foundation was just really wonderful. We had so much support from so many places and they were very instrumental in you know, they would sit down with me and others and figure out what do we want to do. And, you know, Sherry Kwan Lee, right? Yes. He came mm-hmm. up with this idea of the writer to writer mentorship program where we would meet, you know, with an advanced writer 
um, would meet mm-hmm. with a small group of emerging writers. And yeah. this went on for a couple of years with different writers. Barry Jean Borich was, yeah, you took her class. That's how you met. Yes, she was, she was my mentor, yeah. And I actually took some of those classes too. That was one of the, okay. one of the many gifts of doing what I have done is that I got mm-hmm. to take writing classes. The, um, the Verve program, which was the, the first program ever for spoken word artists, first granting program. And it was, just start, it was started at Sassy with me and E.G. Bailey. We put that together. And the national, you sponsored the National Poetry Slam with Diego Vasquez. And... Yep, in 2002, I think it was, yeah. Which is how I got the name Slam Granny. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is very awesome. <laughs> uh, you were talking about kind of like all of the branches of Sassy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it does seem like Sassy was everywhere, especially um, everywhere needed, you know, to, mm-hmm. to some degree. Like you were in the schools, you know, you did the breakfast club. There was a curriculum for the deaf community. Yep. Even, you know, partnering with the Wilder Foundation, the Sexual Violence Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the readings at, you know, coffee houses and libraries. Um, it, it feels like, like Sassy was just so community-centered. That's something I definitely um, wish I had known about even earlier. <laughs> this is, it started at 1993, and, and um, I arrived in Minnesota in 1993 in a really bad situation, unhappy and violent marriage. And, you know, as I mentioned to you before, I just imagine what, what um, difference that might have made, in my, you know, as a 23-year-old yeah. away from home no family in Minnesota and that sort of thing. And, but, you know, at the same time, you know, things happen at the, at the time it's supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm just grateful that I, I got to benefit from, you know, the wonderful programs that, that you had and, and just got a chance to meet you and develop a relationship with you and be able to call you my mentor, my big sister. <laughs> it's just made tremendous difference in my life. And I think so many people, <laughs> you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people in this town could, you know, say the same. Hmm. You said you came here in 93. And when did you find out about Sassy? I found about out Sassy when I was at Hamlin. Um, I started at Hamlin in 99. I, I don't think I, I heard about Sassy too. Probably early 2000s. I was going through my, you know, dark period. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that has a lot to do with it because, you know, I was done with my with my dark period by the time mm-hmm. you entered yours. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you had to get through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> had to kind of get out of my dark period and and I I'm, I'm actually grateful that it was, you know, after leaving the marriage and you know, reclaiming my name and all of that. That's when uh, things, you know, started to happen. And I was coming more into the life I was supposed to be living. So exactly the journey, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just amazed that this small organization was able to do so much and touch so many, so many people. You've been a teacher for, you know, many years. Yeah. You know, this was all while I was still doing Sassy. I got a call from Vina Deo. She was going to do a panel discussion on Black women writers. And someone recommended me to be one of the writers. And I told her, I don't know anything, you know. I'm I'm doing these programs for other people. And I am taking writing classes, but 
I mean, all I can tell you is that, you know, I've started all this stuff so that I could learn. And she says, she said, well, that'll be a really interesting take for our students to hear. So I prepared this, you know, I'm this my first time ever being on a panel. Oh my God. (laughs) And this, um, Professor Professor Rose Brewer, do you know Rose Brewer from the U? She was also on the panel. And she spoke before I did, and she's very confident. And, um, you know, she knows all the million-dollar words. I know a few of them now myself, but back then I didn't. (laughs) And she stood up there, and she did her thing, and it's like, oh, shit, I got to follow that. you got to be kidding me. (laughs) And so I stood up there at the podium, and I said something. I said something about, you know, being, you know, my mom, being a mom and, you know, I don't remember what I said now, but during the Q&A, the woman who was then chair of the English department asked me, she said, what could Hamlin University do, you know, to help a woman like yourself who's in this situation, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't even think about it. The word just popped out of my mouth. I said, you can give me a job. (laughs) And it's like, did I really say that? Yeah. <laughs> so she invited me to her office a week later, you know, because I'm this, I guess it was a challenge. In fact, I know it was because the audio auditorium was full and everybody there heard it. Yeah. So what is she going to do? You know? <laughs> so I figured, okay, I figured she's just going to sit me down in her office and do what I had heard and done so many times before, which is okay. I'll give you $75 to tell me how to be more diverse. And I thought, okay, it's going to be another one of those. But it wasn't. She says, I want to help you write a syllabus and teach you how to teach a class. Wow. And I've been at Hamlin ever since. And that was in 1997. Another one of those pivotal people, pivotal moments. And, you know, I learned so much about the way that that I like to teach. Mm -hmm. Through people like Lawrence Hutera, who said, you do, you know, you want to do this, I'll help you do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to be a lecturer. I just can't do that. You know, um, I need to interact with, with people, you know, and, and my virgin class was really crazy because I hadn't done any college classes by then. And yeah. so, you know, I started feeling like, oh my God, I'm just going to bomb. I'm just going to eek. <laughs> and so I just came, you know, I just, just like I did with those teenagers, I just came yeah. clean and I told the students, you guys are my virgin class. What would you like to learn? And we struck up this wonderful interactive class. And I've been teaching like that ever since. In fact, I, there was a man who came to visit one of my classes. God, I guess I'd been at Hamlin nearly 10 years by then. You know, he was writing a book on teaching. So he visited my class and probably other people's as well. And he says to me, you know what? You're, you're never going to, um, to win an award for your teaching style. But he said, it's, it works. It works really well. Right. And you won an award for your teaching style. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> uh-huh. My youngest daughter, Ebony, this was while I was still living in my mother's apartment. That little girl was late for school every single day. I ended up having to drive her to school. I had a car by then. I, you know, I ended up having to drive her to school every day almost. <laughs> and one day when we went into the, to the building... The assistant principal approached me, and I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You never get over being in the principal's office. (laughs) Which is where I spent a lot of my high school days. (laughs) But I thought, oh, man, what is is going on? What does she want? She says, you know, 
I've noticed the close relationship you have with your daughter. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to, to mentor another African-American girl. And, you know, I just thought, what? You got to be kidding. You mean we're not in trouble? Ebony's not in trouble. I'm not in trouble. What? <laughs> and I told her I have to think about it because I need to, needed to figure some things out. Because, you know, Ebony and Tanya, my, my middle daughter, they're very, very close. And Tanya had just left for college. And I just didn't, you know, Ebony had been through some stuff after Tanya went to college. And, you know, I just didn't want to put her in a position where, you know, she would have to struggle even more. And so I told the, the assistant principal, I says, no, I just can't, I can't subject my daughter to more problems right now. But what I can do is use my experience because I was a teen mom and I know you guys have a teen parents program here. What I can do is, um, you know, teach a creative writing course with those kids. Mm-hmm. She introduced me to the, the teacher in the MICE program. That was, I, I forget what MICE stands for now, but it's a, it was their teen parent program. And she liked the idea. So I went back to my friend, Julie, who had first, you know, brought me to her purpose class and then had also helped me set up, you know, classes with teenagers at Sassy. Mm-hmm. And I asked her to help me put together some sort of curriculum for a 10-week class for teen parents. And she did. You know, we sat down. She she gave me a lot of tips. She helped me write, again, another syllabus, mm-hmm. which is before, before my college syllabus. And so I went into the class thinking, yeah, this is awesome. This is going to be great. And those kids were like, yeah, right, you know. And they just weren't having it. And one day, one of the kids said, you know, Miss Holbrook, you're nice. This is exactly what she said. I'll never forget it. She says, you're nice, but this is boring. You don't, you don't know anything about us. You know, you can't come in here and try to tell us something you don't know anything about. And so I just put away my little plan. And I told her, yeah, I know everything about you because I am. I am you. <laughs> and when I told them my story, I mean, they all just livened right up. They knew that you know, I wasn't just somebody coming and trying to tell them I know better than you. Mm-hmm. And um, man, we had a great, great class. And, you know, one day, this was during the time of Newt Gingrich and the moral majority. It was 1995 because the article in the Star Tribune came out in September 17th, 1995. Oh, okay. That's when it was, yeah. But one day this boy came to class. There, there were several fathers that came. That were that were involved, and this boy named Andy, this little white boy who was just um, he showed up every single time, never participated, just sat there. And I thought, well, okay, uh, I'm not going to tell him to leave, and I'm not going to try to make him do anything. I'm just going to just, you know, it's fine. You're here, great. I'm glad you're here. So one day, <laughs> he just out of nowhere says, "I'm tired of Newt Gingrich and doctors and teachers telling us, you know, what to do." You know, <laughs> you know, they're telling us the teen parents are bad and blah, blah, blah. Then he says, I want to write a letter to the editor. Mm-hmm. So again, I threw my plan out and I said, okay, baby, we are going to write a letter to the editor. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the first thing about writing a letter to the editor. <laughs> but um, a year or two before then, I was the interim editor for our neighborhood newspaper, which was the Whittier Globe. It was a really good newspaper back then. But the guy who was the managing editor, I don't know what happened to him. So, you know, they asked me to be the interim editor while they found someone else. And, you know, I'm such an activist. I couldn't just be an editor. 
So I invited several um, journalists from the Star Tribune, the Pi Press, and several others, I think, to just do a class on something. So, you know, somebody did a class on feature writing. Someone did one on sports writing. Someone did one on food writing. Um, so we had this whole curriculum for about eight weeks. Different uh, different journalists came in, um, you know, they each had their thing and they did their thing and, you know, that was it. So when they, and, and one of them was the op-ed editor, the commentary editor. His name was Eric Ringham. He's at the, at NPR now. And so when this kid said he wanted to write a letter to the editor, I said, okay, I'm going to see if, if this, if Eric can give me some tips. And I called him and I couldn't believe it. He says, I'll do better than that. I'll come to class and I'll teach the kids, you know, how to do this. And then, you know, the more I talked with him, he says, you know, they don't need to write letters to the editor. They need how to learn to write commentaries. So he came to the class. I couldn't believe it. He came to the class and he taught those kids how to write commentaries. He listened to what they had to say. And this one girl, she just kept putting her, her head on the desk, being a journalist and an investigative person. He wasn't just going to just sit there and think whatever he thought. He wanted to find out what's going on. So he asked her, you know, why are you doing this? And she said, because I'm tired. And he said, why are you so tired? She said, because I missed my bus. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, so why didn't you just stay home? Because I want my education. So did you take the bus then, the, the city bus? I didn't have any money. So how'd you get here? I walked. Where do you live? 20 blocks away, I remember. And that kid had gotten up at her regular time, missed her bus, eight months pregnant, walked yeah. to school because she wanted her education so bad. Mm -hmm. And she got there and she couldn't stay awake. Mm. But it just kind of blew his mind, I think, because, you know, he came in with the stereotype too. These are a bunch of wild youngins who don't, you know, they don't care about anything, don't want anything. And boy, did he learn something different just from that one little girl. And the rest of them were just so into this commentary thing that, yeah. that Andy, the boy, mm -hmm. who always came to class and never did anything and got mm -hmm. mad that day at Newt Gingrich, took over the class. He became my, my co-teacher, my co-conspirator. You know, during the next few weeks, they wrote and developed those commentaries. He was very instrumental in giving feedback and taking feedback. And boy, I wish I knew where he was now. But yeah, and Eric told him, for all the commentaries I publish, I'll give you each $100. But you know, here's something else I've learned is that, you know, I talked about my eighth grade English teacher. Yeah. I was just always in the principal's office, but she saw something else. And she encouraged me. And I never forgot that. I never forgot her. She still lives in the back of my mind. And I'm thinking that, you know, I don't know what any of those kids are doing today, but I know, I know for sure that that experience is in the back of their minds somewhere. It seems like all of these mentors and people who've touched you and uh, made a difference in your life, you just kind of wanted to, con to continue passing that on. And you've never stopped. <laughs> you've done that, you know, your entire uh, life and, and you still haven't stopped. And you, you write about, um, you know, wanting to step away from Sassy um, so you can focus more in your, uh, your own writing. And beautiful results are coming from that. <laughs> finally. Finally, because, you know, I, I was with Sassy for 13 years. And uh, a lot of times, you know, people who do arts administration do it because they love the art. But then you get into this day-to-day -day mm -hmm. management stuff. Your your art takes mm -hmm. a back seat. 
by the time I left Sassy and we had made the transition to intermediate arts, I really was a baby writer. And it took a lot of time and a lot of practice and a lot of years and more classes and more mentorship for me to become a better writer. You've been teaching at Hamlin for 23 years. You've, you've, you teach at the Minneapolis Technical Community College and here, there, and everywhere within the community. People are inviting you, you in and continuing your writing practice all along and, and producing beautiful work. Yeah, I ask myself a lot, um, you know, what am I doing? You know, I do tend to focus a lot on both the writing and the community work. Um, they're both just really important to me. For me, it's also, it's, it's kind of a form of, of a healing practice. You know, I mean, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. You know, I, I'm none of those things. You know, teaching people to express themselves is so important. When I was working at the law, you just received a Minnesota State Arts Board grant. There's always that culminating event at the end where you have to have some kind of community engagement. You decided you wanted to have a discussion, and you brought African-American women to talk about the writing life, them, you know, share their work and their, their lives as a writer. And that became more than a single story, which has been going on for five years now, six. <laughs> and we're moving into our sixth year now. That's incredible. So again, it's, it's uh, you receive a gift and you always share the gift. That's kind of what you do. Um, yes, I had received that grant. And yes, I mm -hmm. knew I had to do a community project. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years prior to that, I was invited to give a reading at Birchbark Books. And I didn't want to just, you know, do it myself. So I invited you and Mary Moore Easter, a couple of, I think there were three or four of us from our writing group, from our Black women's writing group. And during the Q&A, some woman in the audience said that she was really surprised that we all sounded so different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. You know, because people tend to lump us all together. Yeah. And so I said to myself then, you know, if I ever get an opportunity, I want to do something about that. Mm -hmm. And then when I got the Arts Board grant a couple of years later and had to have this community event, I had been to, um, I think it was a panel discussion that David Murrah had run with Tish Jones. Yeah. And it, um, it, was, it was a youth program. Okay. And I thought, oh, there, there it is. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a panel panel discussion with black women writers. And I sat down with my daughter and here we are trying to figure out who should be on that panel. And by the time we were done talking, we had named like 50 women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I think this is going to be a series. Yeah. <laughs> and so the first one was African-American women. The second one was women with a Caribbean background. And the third was women from East and West Africa. And the point was to talk about their writing, what, what moves them, what, you know, what do they want to write about? What do they fear writing about? What does the mm -hmm. black literary canon look like? You know, and, and things such as that. And they were, you know, I, I made sure to have women from a lot of different backgrounds in each one so that it wasn't just, you know, so, okay, so there's a biracial woman, there's a, a lesbian woman, there's a transgender woman, there's... You know, it's just women all just coming together and saying, this is who I am. Yeah. Showing the diversity within African diaspora here in Minnesota. Exactly. And for each one, the joint was packed. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, 
I did it again, didn't I? Uh-huh. Here I am. <laughs> I have another program. I was supposed to be writing it. Here I am. Uh-huh. Program. It started with women. Um, and then the second or third, second and third years, I think we still focused on women, but we expanded beyond black women and just yeah. invited women from the various uh, BIPOC communities. Just, you know, so what does food look like from the the vantage point of a Dakota woman and an African-American woman and a Hmong farmer? And it's like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And all these different topics. And so now we're putting together an anthology um, yeah. to, to celebrate the first five years of More Than a Single Story. Mm-hmm. And you've incorporated men as well. Through- oh, yeah. Yeah. During the third year, I invited yeah. David Murrah in to help me do a men's program. And that's, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, because I've heard people call him the godfather. (laughs) And people have often referred to me as their fairy godmother. Yes. (laughs) So the godmama and the godpapa got to do this thing. So he has, you know, put together some amazing programs on discussions um, with men. You know, I know what women want to hear from men, but I don't know what men want to talk about. Right. So the point was to have him... And a bunch of men, again, from a lot of different communities, talk about what is it you want to talk about publicly. And it's been pretty awesome. So he and I are co-editing this anthology that the U of M Press is, is working with us on. So yeah. I am just thrilled, Beautiful. excited, blown away. There have been so many people who've, who've, who've been involved in more than a single story. I think I, think I counted like 72 individuals, artists, and, uh, you know, writers, and other kinds of artists, and scholars, and, you know, filmmakers, media artists, like all kinds of artists had an opportunity to um, kind of share the stage with you and, and share their their stories. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, I'm really shy, and I don't like being out front with, I just don't like it, you know, but I love put, putting people together. I like creating community. Somebody said to me once, she said, how do you do that? You're quiet. In her, in her experience, leadership is loud and robust and more extroverted. How do you do that? And I told her, I don't know. I just do it. <laughs> I feel like something needs to be done. And I don't know if I'm the right person to do it. But if I can put people together who have expertise or knowledge or, yeah. or something to talk about it, then something gets done. Yeah. Well, beautiful things have, have come out of out of whatever it is that's driving you. I don't know what it is. Man. <laughs> yeah. I think it's I think it's insanity a lot of times. <laughs> I was talking to an old boyfriend um mm-hmm. about a month ago and he's a Vietnam vet and most of our time together was was him fighting his demons. <laughs> mm. But he said to me, he says, you know, you have always had this ability to see things before other people see them. Yeah. And I said, what? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was glad I was sitting down because, mm-hmm. you know, I had no idea that he could see beyond his own demons. And I said, wow, you know, I didn't know that you could even see me. Mm. Well, in, in the terms of, you know, like the gift of sight that we talked about earlier, um, when I was reading your book, I felt like, Minneapolis feels like such a, a character. You know, this is where you grew up. You you left for a little bit, like maybe a decade or so, a decade or maybe a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then you return. 
Yeah. And it was kind of like upon your return when you transition into this, this new life, like even though there were challenges and that sort of thing, but you started, you know, making some decisions like you wanted to write. And then eventually it was, you wanted to write and you want to heal and you want to, you know, create arts programming. Are you still willing to read that, that section? Yeah. Back then I was living, you remember when I was living um, by the river? Yes. We used to have the writing group and the party room down yes, there. Yes. Yeah. That's where I was living then. Okay. Yeah. And I think I, I think I started working on this. We had talked the other day, you and I too, about my writing process and I'm a really, really slow writer. It takes me forever to write a piece. Mm-hmm. But this one um, was shortly after Mrs. Rudell, the um, assistant principal, had talked with me about teaching that class. And we had had so many conversations about, you know, the way that, that kids are treated mm-hmm. in schools. And so I think I was just sitting there thinking about that because my little home office at that time was overlooking the um the three bridges and the river mm-hmm. and the, the um you know all that so I was just sitting there watching and and this so this is what came out of it I live two and a half miles from downtown Minneapolis however the city skyline looks like it's right outside my window on a clear night the skyscrapers remind me of sentinels standing guard over the University of Minnesota's imposing West Bank office building which sits rooted firmly in the ground across the freeway seemingly touching the distance from my place. Panning slightly to the right, orange lights move in perfect synchronicity, like a chorus line atop a silo high above the city. Each hoofer gets her moment on stage as the lights spell out G-O-L-D-M-E-D-A-L-F-L-O-U-R, illuminating the old mill that has been converted to a museum to educate the public about Minneapolis's legendary flower industry. Straight ahead, a series of bridges mark the communities on the east and west banks of the Mississippi River. On the first bridge, the Hennepin Avenue Bridge, an arc of green lights casts mysterious shadows over the next bridge, which crosses the river from 3rd Avenue. As my gaze moves in closer to my neighborhood, I see two rows of yellow lights slanting downward. Beneath the Stone Arch Bridge, they kiss the river and tip their hats, alerting night-floating barges of potential danger. Just as the sun is about to make its appearance, caravans of yellow school buses cross the bridge directly in front of my window. One caravan crosses west to east, the other in the opposite direction. As I glance at the children bouncing around inside the buses, I wonder how many of them began their day with a nourishing breakfast and how many were waiting to get to school for free or reduced price meals. How many are encouraged to do their homework last night? How many witnessed violence in their neighborhood or experienced it in their homes? How many children boarded the bus from a homeless shelter? How many homeless children will miss school today because their families couldn't find shelter last night? Where are the children who have run away from unbearable home environments? Have they found their way to safe places, alternative schools perhaps? How many children on those buses speak are, are native English speakers? Which ones speak Ebonics as their mother tongue? Which children dreaded getting on the bus this morning? knowing they would have to face a bully. And who were the children who couldn't wait to get on the bus so they could harass a child whom they consider an easy mark? I wonder which children will be greeted this morning by a smiling teacher, happy to see them, and which ones will be greeted by teachers who take the glint out of their eyes. 
Yeah, so that's about the city, but it's also, you know, I'm thinking about teachers and children in that chapter big time <laughs> and what kind of teacher I wanted to be. I'm still surprised when I think about, um, you know, I taught first year English for my first, what, 10, 15 years in Hamlin. Mm-hmm. And I'm still really, you know, surprised and, and, and sad for the number of students who came into that class scared to death of writing because of something that happened to them. That's something a teacher did to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have been in kindergarten. It might've been in middle school, but you know, teachers have so much power. I don't even know if they are aware of the power they carry mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that can, you know, sort of set the stage for a child's entire life. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about Minneapolis and and other places where you, you know, kind of talk about growing up in South Minneapolis and mm-hmm. it's on the, uh, the, the world stage right now. And it's yeah, it sure uh, as hell is. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the, do the, the horrific murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. but also the aftermath, which has mm-hmm. been incredible in terms yeah. of the activism and the political action. And I, I think, you know, it definitely says something of the the character of this town, you know, to some degree. So we, we see kind of like the two sides of it. It's the the horror <laughs> and mm-hmm. the the oppressive side, but then there's the 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 spirit of activism and really imagining whole new possibilities, you know, for us. Um, as people, particularly uh, people of color, and and I feel like you know just reading your book and and knowing, like getting to know all of these these folks who've been you know a part of your life. You're also you know kind of highlighting the you know the better nature of of this place, mm-hmm. and it's been a, a place of nurturing, you know, like nurturing your artistic life and your your professional life as an an arts administrator. You know, when when a place is home to you, you don't see it the way that others see it. Mm-hmm. When I left home, you know, with, with my little boy and then came back some 13 years later and, mm-hmm. and really started my life, you could say, uh, you know, I began to notice over the years that this place is really something. It's, it's, it's sort of a micro something. That, you know, just draws people here from both coasts, from everywhere. And, you know, you hear about cold Minnesota. It's cold as hell in Minnesota. I ain't going there. But then they end up coming and staying. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so in a way for me, and this might sound absolutely crazy, but to me, it makes sense that Minneapolis would be the place that change began to happen. Yeah. You know, because it has this this magical quality that I can't put words to somebody more eloquent than I could put words to Dr. Bill Green probably could Mm -hmm. and probably does in his writing. He's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I grew up just a few blocks from, from where George Floyd was killed. We grew up on 38th and Clinton right across the street from Sabathony center. Mm -hmm. And we used to walk over there all the time. Um, Yeah. And it was, the neighborhood was different then because it was some time ago, but still, um, Mm -hmm. I just absolutely believe that even with, um, I don't know, with the, the, the 
dichotomies with the, you know, Minneapolis being named one of the most literate cities in the nation and the highest educated and all this. And then also being the one with the highest um, uh, racial disparities. Yeah. The two opposite ends of the same pole. Yes. All live here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it's just kind of a, kind of, kind of interesting to me. And it is, yeah. it's a mystery, but it's, but it's real. It, it's mm-hmm. very real. And it totally, for some reason that I cannot explain, makes sense to me that it would yeah. all happen right here in Minneapolis. Yeah. So, and you, you also, um, you know, talk about you and your family's like interactions with, with the police and, you know, negative ways and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, on occasion, or at least there was the one surprising way that you talk about it is interesting. And I, I really feel like that your book coming out now, it's, it's coming out at the, at the right time. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that uh, many, the Minneapolis police department has a long history of violence against black people. My favorite cousin, my two favorite cousins are both boys. Um, mm-hmm. But one in particular, boy, he has told me stories. Whew. Yeah. Josie Johnson and I interviewed him. Um, while we were working on her book because mm. you know he was like in the thick of things when you know things were popping in the in the 60s 70s 80s and um and boy they, these things are just sort of hidden from view but but we know they're hidden from from public view but not from our public right. view it's not hidden from us because we're experiencing exactly. it mm-hmm. right <laughs> yep well, I said my cousins are boys, they're old men, but they used to be boys. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely had our share of it in uh, New York, for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I mentioned to you also that I feel like your book uh, really needs to be incorporated into feminist and gender studies curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe that very strongly. and And it's um, so you were coming of age in the 60s and 70s when, you know, the women's movement was. I hate to burst your bubble, darling, but I was coming up in the 50s and 60s. Ah, <laughs> uh, wait, well, you were born in the 50s, weren't you? No. <laughs> okay, I'm not doing the math. I'm a okay. genu- genuinely old lady. Uh, no. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, so I, I see myself. Oh, so, okay. So even though I was born 1970, I feel like I was coming of age in the 80s and 90s. So right, like I was yeah. becoming a young adult. Exactly. My younger son, Julian, was born in 1970. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, you were, you were young still. <laughs> yeah, okay. And you were still, you were still, you know, kind of like, emer- like an emerging adult. Okay. Right? I like that term. <laughs> I like that emerging adult. That's yeah. nice. <laughs> so this, this kind of the women's movement was kind of happening mm-hmm. at that time, but you didn't see yourself like I think a lot of black and brown women mm-hmm. um, at that time did not see themselves in that particular movement of what was happening because uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> nope. wasn't wasn't really addressing Mm-mm. your issues and that sort of thing, and that that's something I've always heard. Like, and by the time I came of age and started re- reading about reading feminist literature and and things like that and hearing. Um, you know, at the beginning stages and, and even that, you know, by the time I entered it, it, it really felt a lot like a white woman's movement. Yep. 
Yeah, and in many ways it still does because, um, you know, I mean, I wonder how many people really know that the Me Too movement was started by a black woman in the Bronx. Right, yeah. Tarana Burke. Yeah, Tarana Burke, yep. yep. And she started it because she wanted to teach um, younger black and brown women that they don't have to put up with sexual abuse and they don't have to put up with, you know, with these things that hurt them. But again, you know, how often do we hear her name in connection with Me Too? Yeah. Buffy was able to interview her at St. Thomas before the before we went, all went on lockdown. Wow, really? Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, that was their first time, you know, knowing about her, mm-hmm. hearing her. And, and she was involved in the, in the work of teaching young Black girls. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, so hashtag Me Too, be, you know, began with that. Yeah, and I, I think that your story demonstrates or shares the reasons why um, Black and brown women did not feel like that movement was was necessarily for us so this is like your book is like a missing piece to the Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the story and interestingly I think it was a couple of hours before you told me that you thought it should be in gender studies programs I got an email from a white poet who said you know your book should be in women's studies I said wow Mm -hmm. wow two different (laughs) two different ends again so yes I think it is essential reading I just wrote the damn book. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> that should be the last yeah. word in the, in the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I was just going to say that um, some of the things that I try to learn from you and try to emulate as much as I can is having that like courageous humility. I don't, I kind of miss the courageous part. <laughs> I think sometimes so I'm, I'm working on that. And, you know, you've always had this willingness to just say yes, to give it a shot, to try. Um, and you've done that beautifully, like in collaboration with others and um, accepting feedback from others and being mentored by others, but also willing to give all of those things back to, to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, going back to the Star Tribune review you know, looking glass into a life well lived. Um, I think for me, that's, yeah, that just kind of explains how that happened mm-hmm. <laughs> from, from an outsider, you know, mm-hmm. looking in and, and um, just from knowing you, but definitely the stories that you've crafted, crafted so masterfully mm-hmm. um, in this collection really illuminates that. And, and it's a gift. Um, to to me and it will be to to anyone who reads it so thank you thank you sherry